0: Let me go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get started. Uh, we got a good a bit, a good a bit, good amount of ground to cover, and hopefully I'll gain my speaking voice, because um, uh, I, I really want to be able to kind of close this series up today. So we're gonna we're gonna finish out kind of looking at all the key elements of the revisionist arguments. Um, so let me pray for us, and we will get started. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for sending your Son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, and to rise in victory and in vindication over sin, death, and Satan. May we never lose sight of the gospel and the good news of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, the hope of the resurrection, and the fact that through your Son, Lord, you have uh, enacted a plan to redeem and restore us to yourself, to unite us to you as your adopted children, claiming us as your own, so that we are secure in our relationship with you into eternity. So may we Rest and rejoice in that profound truth, and may that shape everything that we think, do, and how we live. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I apologize for what I'm about to do to you, because you're going to be drinking from a fire hose. I want to I finish this series up today, uh, so we're going to be covering a lot of ground. So if you remember last week, we began looking at the revisionist arguments, specifically at Brownson. And so we're going to kind of pick up where we left off looking at the egalitarian argument and how there's a false equivalence that's taking place there. But one of the other things we're also going to do as we look at that is, is uh, we're going to spend some time because the egalitarian, the way he frames that, I, I should say, with relationship to patriarchy uh, is, is a pretty significant argument that carries over into some of the things from vines and other elements as well. So I want to make sure we kind of, we want to hit, we want to hit that well so as we move forward, you'll see how it's at play, um, along with the other stuff we've already looked at. So by way of review, as we're doing this, if you remember, we do not want to do this. We want to avoid anachronistically imposing ideas and concepts from a later time onto the text and making that text conform to the current contemporary modern ideas and notions. So by, by recollection, what we saw is that in chapter two of Brownson, this is what he was doing. He was imposing modern gender theory, modern queer theory, if you will, on the text and making the text conform to those modern assumptions in order to obscure the internal logic of the text, which is the male-female distinction. Um, That's going to play out again today. We're going to see that carrying over. So we don't want to do this. What we do want to do, however, is this. We want to allow the text to speak for itself on its own terms and to the best of our ability, try to understand it as the author and the original hearers would have. So that's our framework. That's what we want to keep in view as we're kind of continuing to work through the material. All right, so egalitarianism. Uh, this is a uniquely Protestant problem because neither the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church have wrestled with this issue. Um, and there's something to be said for the greater traditions within the church in terms of what the church has historically believed and practiced. This has always been, a honestly, a Protestant position. If you go back and you read the early Reformers, they talked about tradition. What they were doing, however, was trying to reform it in light of scripture, not start new things. And when you trace down the history of the egalitarianism, uh, it really seems to kind of, if you want to say broadly speaking, it's a historical novelty uh, that's born out of a flawed reading of scripture that initially emerged within the more heterodox or potentially even heretically leaning Protestant sects such as the Quakers. So that's really its origins. Uh, many of them trace back to kind of the Anabaptist radical reformation, which even the, the early reformers looked at and they said, no, you're, you're going in directions that you shouldn't, because they're not only out of, out of step with scripture, they're out of step with tradition, etc. cetera. So you're really coming up with novel ideas. Uh, secondly, uh, the thing that's important to highlight with regard to egalitarianism, uh, we would say that it's based on an either or reading of scripture, which is why we say it's flawed. However, what we're going to see with, with Brownson is that uh, he takes it in some directions that he shouldn't. But, but secondly, with res- respect to egalitarianism, it's been afforded a status of being a position that isn't viewed as definitively sinful or heretical. And this is important. And the reason is because there are texts in the old and new Testament that do evidence, eg- an egalitarian standing of the sexes. Does this make sense? So this is why, for example, Complementarian churches will have fellowship with egalitarian churches, but they might say we're not going to worship together. We do have a significant difference of opinion on this. But the the, the complementarian complementarian side says that you're you're understanding it's flawed, but not necessarily sinful. And and that's an important distinction. With Brownson, however, he takes the Edoor reading and pushes it beyond flawed into areas that we would say are incorrect. And he does this under the specter of patriarchy. So Brownson does this. He states that there's two contrasting streams within the biblical canon. One is towards the eradication of patriarchy, while the other seems to instantiate it. What's important is for us this morning is to, is to immediately recognize how Brownson frames the view, the complementarian view, that men and women in marriage have differing roles as being derived from the curse in Genesis three. is important to grasp so we see this uh, from his own writing right page 58 he writes (laughs) the genesis narrative tells us twice that both male and female are created in the image of god as i've noted in chapter 2 remember that's the chapter that had all those issues that we looked at as i noted in chapter 2 this portrayal underscores the equality of men and women before god and in their relationship to the rest of creation moreover as i noted above The account of the creation of women in Genesis 2 places the emphasis on the similarity of men and women that is over and against the rest of the animal world. It is not until after the fall in Genesis 3.16, so here it is, right, that we find explicit discussion about patriarchy. The husband's rule derives not from gracious concern, but from greater strength. Therefore, Genesis 13 portrays patriarchy not as grounded in creation, but in the conflicted relationship between men and women resulting from the fall. Why I want to highlight this is because Brownson is misrepresenting the complementarian position. He's he's labeling it as patriarchy, and he's grounding it in the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis. And so there's two important things to note here. First, the complementarian position states the role differences, i.e. the headship of the husband, submission of the wife, all those various texts in the New Testament— that that talk to the, or speak to those things, are derived from Genesis two. Genesis two, where you see the creation account, and what we what we would point to is we would say, the man is created first. And we're gonna we're gonna come back to this later because Paul uses this very reasoning. We say the man is created first. The woman is presented to Adam as a suitable helpmate, and then thirdly, Adam names her, calls her woman so that's what, the, that's what the complementarians will point to and will say, this is the basis of complementarianism or the differentiation between the genders with respects to roles within the household and the church. Brownson is misrepresenting this position so that he can frame it as an aspect of our fallen condition. That's not insignificant. So do you understand what, how he's framing this? Rather than being reflected of the creative order that has been corrupted by the fall and is being redeemed and restored in the gospel. So kind of put that in your head, file that way, file that in there and how he's framing this as part of the fall rather than part of the created order that's been affected by the fall but is being redeemed in the New Testament by the Spirit. Second, Brownson is continuing to deploy the either or fallacy to obscure the differences male and female. And you can see this where he states, as I noted, the account in Genesis 2 places the emphasis on the similarity of men and women over and against and he, he frames it against the animal world. But what he's doing there is, is, again, either or. Because we would say, no, that text does say that men and women are equal, made in God's image and likeness, but also different as men and women. But the reason Brownson is continuing to deploy the either or fallacy instead of a both and is to continue to obscure the importance of that distinction and difference as male and female. So I would agree, the scriptures definitively and definitely pushed against misogynistic notions in the ancient Near East and and in the New Testament era first century time of the church but it also it also still maintains the differences and distinctions between men and women as being different and that those differences have ongoing implications for the church and family Brownson's way of handling this is to simply emphasize one stream over and against the other and then say that anything related to gender complementarity is patriarchal Make sense? So, you see this here. He says, The overall movement of the moral logic of Scripture with respect to patriarchy is thus away from roles defined by household responsibilities in the ancient world, including the divisions of honor, status, and worth, defined along gender lines, and toward a vision of mutuality and equality in which the procreative enterprise of male and female no longer defines human identity at its core. Instead, humans draw their core identity from their union with Christ, and their participation in the age to come. Now, there is a certain measure of truth to this. Our identity is primarily now found in our union with Christ, but that doesn't dismiss our instantiated reality as being made as men and women. Does that make sense? So he's saying this trumps the other. And, and so to arrive at this conclusion, Brown again is deploying an either-or reading of the New Testament text that addressed the subject of men and women, husbands and wives. He frames one is good, the other is bad, under the guise of patriarchy, and then works to dismiss it. Uh, we can see this, or you would see this if you read Brownson, especially in how he treats Paul, especially in how he treats Paul's writings. So, for example, he highlights Galatians 3:28, which Paul says there is neither male nor female. He says, This is good, this this is this is the vision, this is the, tra- the trajectory that we're heading. And then he frames all the other texts that still maintain also written by Paul differences in terms of responsibility by male, men and women, specifically husbands and wives. And he frames those as patriarchal hangovers. Now, because he's ignoring the male female distinction as having any bearing or significance, he's able to do this and dismiss the creation account, or dismiss that distinction in the creation account. And in doing this, what he does is he relativizes all of Paul's instructions to husbands and wives. And he frames them as a as pragmatic instructions because they're, they're essentially a hangover from patriarchy. Does this make sense? So you see this. He says, one gets the distinction that the gender distinctions Paul is speaking of here have a what? Pragmatic basis. Not a deep <laughs> ontological basis. So so if they were ontological, we would say they're part of the created order. Does that make sense? He's saying they're not. they're, They're pragmatic. They're situational. It's a hangover from patriarchy. In other words, for Paul, the family structures that are part of this world are indeed patriarchal. Other forms of social organization within families were inconceivable in his day. To the extent that people participated in these structures, they needed to recognize the limits and roles that were required of them, particularly when failure to do so would disrupt communities and shame individuals. And so we're seeing here that dismissal of those texts, because they're just pragmatic concerns that were only applicable then, then because ultimately they are pragmatic, not ontological. But this utterly fails, Here, here again, this utterly fails to allow Paul's reasoning to play any role in actually reading Paul. So what does Paul say? How does Paul argue this? What, what, what are the, What's the rational um, grounding, let's say, that Paul deploys when he speaks of these things? <clears throat> Paul is arguing that these created differences as male and female have ongoing implication, implications, and you can see this in 1 Timothy. So this is what Paul says. I do not permit a woman, and I have in parentheses here wife, because the Greek terms for woman and wife and man and husband, it's the, it's the same word. So the same word is used for man or husband. The same word is used for wife or, or, or woman. And con- you have to use context to kind of understand it. My personal opinion is I think he's addressing husbands and wives specifically. So I do not permit a woman or wife to teach or to exercise authority. And, and the, the word there, there's some, some evidence that that word is, has a usurping kind of authority. Right? Over a man or over her husband. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what does he say? Where does he go? The creation account for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And this is why the complementarians, we don't say Genesis three is where you see these issues coming into play. We look to the creation account and we follow Paul where Paul says he was made first, that's significant, right? What's Brownson do? He misrepresents it, tries to ground it in the fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she should be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I don't want to to jump too far into trying to exegete this specific text. I just want to highlight what's Paul's reasoning? what's What's the moral or internal logic that Paul gives us? Is it pragmatic or is it creational, ontological? Which one seems to better reflect the truth of things? And does Brownson seem to be accurately representing what Paul is saying? Resolving the supposed tensions between statements like this and the other one in, in Galatians, where he says there's no longer men nor women, right, uh, <coughs> would be to ask how these texts can be understood in light of one another. Truth is in the tension. Truth is in the tension. So Galatians says men and women are equal in value and dignity. We're one in Christ, right? Second, or first Timothy 2, men and women are assigned differing roles. We would say both of these statements are true. We want to read them in light of one another, in light of one another. We don't want to dismiss one or place one side over and against the other, which is exactly what Brownson is doing. You see, Brownson is constructing a way to discard Paul's commands to the husbands and wives over here as a patriarchal hangover because they weaken and undermine his assertion that the male female distinction in Genesis is meaningless. Do you see the connection? Do you see why he's doing this? He has to get rid of these New Testament commands. He has to. He has to render them pragmatic and situational and dismiss them because they're based on the very thing he's already trying to get us to not see, which is the male-female distinction as being significant. (coughs) Um, Basically, if we were to redraw this, this is what Brownson is doing. Everything in the New Testament, including that... That statement in uh, 1 Timothy that address female, male, husband, wife distinctions is a hangover from patriarchy. So we get rid of that, and we only read this, Galatians 3.28. This idea that men and women, there's no longer any differences or distinctions between them, and they're equal in value and dignity and interchangeable. Interchangeable. This is important. We can respect. Well, if you're arguing for the acceptance of same-sex unions, then that interchangeability has to go all the way down. Does that make sense? And you can see this in this, in this section here. He says, hierarchy or patriarchy cannot be construed to be the essence of a normative gender complementarity that is allegedly, allegedly violated by same-sex unions. We might understand gender complementarity in other terms, of course, however... If we are to say that same-sex unions are wrong, we cannot say that they are wrong because they violate a hierarchical understanding of gender complementarity. The Bible taken as a whole does not support such a hierarchical vision of gender complementarity as as expressive of core Christian identity. Moreover, Paul's insistence in 1 Corinthians 7 that husbands and wives exercise mutual authority over each other's bodies explicitly removes hierarchical relationships from the sex act where in Paul's vision, a purely egalitarian structure exists. By labeling all the husband and wife commands as a patriarchal hangover and dismissing them as merely pragmatic concerns, Brownson is again obscuring the underlying logic in Paul's own argument the male female distinction at creation, and that those distinctions have ongoing relevance. For us today. Why is he doing this? Why is Brownson doing this? Because he has to. So we can argue for a purely egalitarian structure that allows for the sameness of homosexual unions to be accepted. Men and women are essentially the same, and therefore interchangeable. We're not even close to being the same. <laughs> I agree. I'm just, I'm, 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 we're, I'm, I'm looking at I'm trying to help you see this is how, this is how Brownson is arguing for this position and and the re you have a question. Yeah. So are there, I guess, are there churches that believe this or are preaching this now? Yes. Yeah. So they're using his arguments to say that this is okay. I mean, I don't know if they're specifically using his arguments, right? but like like we talked about last week brownson's work is a key work that's pointed to as being a substantive and a, and if you will kind of strong argument for the include the full inclusion of same-sex unions as something that is blessed by god but i'm the re- so that's why we're spending so much time looking on it and it influences others we're going to see how this argument uh, especially with with respect to patriarchy as this kind of spectre of patriarchy we're going to see how vines picks it up we're going to see so it it this this way of framing it, and that's why we spend so much time on it. This way of framing complementarianism as a patriarchal hangover, so that you can kind of skirt around the New Testament commands with respect to husbands and husbands and wives as a pragmatic concern of Paul, therefore no longer binding on us today, is because those texts push back <coughs> against this notion that men and women are ontologically the same, and and the reason that. Brownson recognizes the reason he has to argue for this purely egalitarian structure is because in order to affirm, let's say, same-sex unions as being acceptable, then men and women have to be the same all the way down. They have to be interchangeable. And he he, he argues for that on the basis that Paul says there's no longer male nor female. So do you see how he's doing it? He's picking one and dismissing all the rest. Do you have a question, Rob? How does he then uh, cover up... Words that God says, it's an we're right? gonna get there. That's where because we're. Right. That's the first thing is because all of it he keeps shoveling it, but he can't cover that up. That's where we're going. But the reason the reason I haven't started in the texts is because I wanted to kind of por- present how they're framing things, because how they frame things then shapes how they interpret the texts. And so this is why we spent so much time looking at how Brownson is framing these issues in these texts. Because I want you to understand, what is his hermeneutical approach? Because I I would contend that the issue is not how he's reading one specific text. He's reading the whole Bible wrong. His entire interpretive method is corrupt. And 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 this is why week one we looked at the developments in philosophy with Foucault and all that stuff. Because... You can see how he's taking a Foucaultian read of the text. These commands that Paul gives to husbands and wives, that's patriarchy. That's oppression. And so we need to get rid of those things. But not if we're, it can't be oppression if we're treating our wives as Christ treats us. Right. Well, we're going to, exactly. we're going to come, we're going to come to that. Okay. All right. So I want to move. We still got to, we got to, we got to hit the other, other elements in revisionist uh, arguments. So uh, one of the key ones you'll see, this is one that uh, Vines uses, is that the Bible doesn't address modern understandings of same-sex relationships. So there's two elements to this. One is orientation, and the second one is that the the same-sex relationships that the biblical writers knew of were categorically different than the ones we know of today. So first we're going to tackle orientation. Uh, Vines raises this question in chapter two, and he frames it a lot like Brownson does. And what I mean by that is he, he points to all these earlier debates in church history, draws an equivalence to, to make the point that our contemporary understanding of sexual orientation is a new development that we should incorporate into our thinking and reading of Scripture and therefore revisit and reimagine our understandings of same-sex relationships, so that because we now understand orientation, they should be viewed as acceptable. So first, it should be stated that the mere presence of a desire does not justify it. If we take seriously the notion of sin and its ongoing impact on humanity, we should not be surprised to find persistent wants and desires in all of us that run contrary to what God declares right and good. So the mere presence of a want or a desire, even if it's persistent, doesn't justify it. Secondly, a major issue in our contemporary context is how we've conflated our sexual appetites with our sense of self. What I mean by this is, this is something that Carl Truman, in his book, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, really lays out well. I highly recommend that. It's It's a thick read, but it's well worth the effort and time. In our modern age, we tend to, for some reason, elevate our sexual desires and define ourselves by those things. And that's what you're seeing happen. Uh, This is something Truman details well, and he says, This understanding of our sexuality means that debates about the limits of acceptable sexual expression become almost pointless, because any attempt to corral sexual behavior is then rendered an oppressive move designed to make the individual inauthentic. Think about how the, the conversations take place. You say, that's wrong, and, and they say, you're denying me the ability to be true to myself. There's an elevation of sexual desire as the thing which tends to be the primary way in which we identify ourselves. Now, that may not be true of everybody, but we, I think a strong case can be made that is ex- expressively true of, of the LGBTQ movement. They define themselves by what? their sexuality. I think you can even say that the that, that this is evidenced in vines, we're going to see this, but, but think about the, the, the nomenclature, gay Christian. Like, which is first? <clears throat> which comes first? Why would you identify as a gay Christian? So even there, you're seeing this primary identification with the sexual inclination. And you see this in vines, for example, because in a chapter where he's discussing uh, celibacy and whether or not that's appropriate, he he tend he seems to view celib this this notion that someone who's same sex attracted might have to be celibate as harsh and even potentially inhuman. He says it sends a message message to gay Christians that their sexual selves are inherently shameful. It's not a fulfillment of sexuality for gay Christians, but a rejection of it. But here's the deal. If it is sinful, then the only appropriate response is to repent, resist, and rest in the justifying and shame-lifting assurance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. And should you ask Christ to remove that from you? Yeah, and he may or he may not. Right. right. Whether, this is the third thing, whether orientation is a framework of the biblical writers is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. And here's why, regardless of the underlying structure of the desire, if the scripture says an activity or action or a desire is sinful, then it's sinful. And it doesn't matter if it's fleeting or persistent. What he's trying to do, he's trying to say, well, because this is a persistent desire, quote unquote orientation, it should be acceptable. But the underlying structure of the desire Makes no difference. Because that's what we're talking about. He's saying it's a persistent desire. We call that orientation. But that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. doesn't matter if a desire for sin is fleeting or it sticks. We're called to turn from them in repentance and faith, trusting in Christ. Does this make sense? So, or orientation, and then secondly, the question of this notion that the ancients didn't know uh, of sexual orientation is, is a misrepresentation of the, uh, the, the available text that we have and we can read. And this is something uh, that Brownson highlights, Vine, Vine's highlights, and Preston Sprinkle wrote an uh, article. I'm happy to send this to you if you'd like it. Uh, shoot me an email. It's, a, it's worth the read. But he says the claim that writers in the first century, including Paul, did not look at same-sex eroticism with an understanding of sexual orientation that is commonplace today ignores a wealth of historical evidence to the contrary. And he gives the receipts in there, as well as the the book by Gagnon. You can read both of those. I would I would recommend it. I want to I don't want to like inundate you with all these like references, but they're there. They're there to find. So this this notion that orientation is a purely modern understanding is, is a, is a misrepresentation of, of the Ancients. Because if what was writing about it, it was going on then. Yeah. Um, so secondly, uh, because of orientation, this kind of gets stacked on top. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but this, this is, uh, he's drawing from Brownson. This is something that Vines picks up on. Uh, but because of orientation, same sex unions meet the criteria for one flesh unions. And what he's doing is he's pulling from an argument uh, in Brownson that rests atop the argument that Brownson makes to kind of obscure the male-female distinction. Because once he does that, he has to argue that ho- homosexual unions can be uh, can be considered a one-flesh union. And he does this by broadness, broadening uh, the text. Um, well, hold on, let me... Let's bring this up, because this is where Brownson draws on. He says, because same-sex couples share the same anatomy, the traditional argument continues. They cannot become one flesh in the biblical sense. But as New Testament scholar James Brownson explained, this interpretation over-sexualizes the phrase one flesh in the Bible. The term flesh is used metaphorically to describe ties of kinship. So in this chapter, Brownson attempts to argue that that phrase, that a husband should leave his mother, father, mother, and be cleave, right, and they should become one <clears throat> flesh. Brownson tries to argue that that one-flesh idiom is actually pointing to broader kinship ties, if that makes sense. But the only way you can make that argument is by first getting rid of the male-female distinction as being significant, which we already looked at, and that, that argument falls apart. And then the second issue is that the other texts that Brownson points to in reference, they don't actually use the exact phrase one-flesh. They do talk about, uh, I think it's bone and flesh or something like that. But the, but the people that he's pointing to to point to kinship ties have a common ancestor. So what's that mean? Somewhere in their history, a man and a woman got together and had babies who had other babies. So they have kinship ties because there was a one flesh union bet- between a man and a woman at some point in the past. So the, the whole notion of these broader kinship ties, it, it, it presupposes the one flesh union of a husband and wife. Does that make sense? So... Anyway, this this aspect of it kind of crumbles, but I wanted to highlight it because it is an important aspect of some of the revisionist stuff that's out there. This one comes up a lot. Modern-day consensual same-sex relationships were unknown to the biblical writers. Uh, This is based on the argument that the same-sex relationships in the ancient world were all exploitive expressions. For example, pederasty. I always pronounce that word wrong, but when male... Uh, a grown man would take on a young prepubescent boy and use him as a sexual object, <coughs> which was a common practice in, in Rome, Greco-Roman culture. But uh, this isn't an accurate representation of the texts that are available to us. So again, there's there's a selective reading. This is something that Preston Sprinkle points out, and Robin, Robert Gagnon highlights how in Plato's Symposium, you, you can see Plato in this writing, making a distinction between exploitive and more what we would consider or call today consensual same-sex relationships. And so Gagnon says this, he says, there were certainly instances of exploited, exploitive homosexual relationships in antiquity and pederasty was the most common form of homoerotic expression. Yet that is a far cry from making the case that homosexuality in Greco-Roman society was inherently exploitive or that it was so prone to exploitation that Jews and Christians could not make a distinction between exploitive and non-exploitive forms. Hmm. Victimization simply did not factor significantly in the arguments that Jews and Christians made in the ancient world. All forms of homosexual and lesbian conduct were wrong simply because of what it was not, natural sexual intercourse with the opposite sex. So, next one. The Bible never had a sexual norm. This one is... Something that will pop up quite often, usually in a flippant way, but what they're typically pointing to is that in the Old Testament, for example, they practice polygamy. Supposedly, a New Testament comes around, polygamy is no longer right. Um, or they'll, they'll look to other, other texts, and they'll, they'll misinterpret them uh, or mis, misrepresent what the text is saying uh, in order to kind of paint this picture that ultimately we can't really trust the scriptures for reliable um, guidance for sexual ethics. But wasn't polygamy different than, we're looking at it from a 20th century mindset, opposed to the ancient mindset, where it was more along the lines of the... Uh, to, there weren't enough men. There weren't, you, by having all these wives, you basically were building up to where you had workers in your family, and you had to take care of all of them the same. Well... and opposed to now, that's not needed. So here's what I want everybody to, I want you to think about this question. And because I'm going to answer, I think I'm going to answer that. Okay. Where did Jesus and the early church get the idea that monogamy was the proper course? Like, was that a new idea? Or is that an old idea? That's an important question to ask. So what, we're going to take up the question of polygamy. So first... The Bible describes the practice of polygamy negatively. If you read the Old Testament, all of the narratives that talk about polygamy, it never goes well. It never goes well. And, and so Scripture can teach without kind of hitting you on the nose. It can just show you, look what happens when you do this. And so go read the Old Testament narratives. Like there's always all manner of conflict and sin and, and chaos that, get, that happens in people's families because of the practice of polygamy. Now, since we're thick headed, the Bible makes a point to tell us that the first polygamist was Lamech, who was a child of Cain. Look how it describes it. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 70 fold He's clearly... A misogynist. And he's threatening his wives. So now you have to be pretty dense to not read this and go, hey, Lamech, probably not a good guy, and he's the first polygamist. Maybe I shouldn't follow in his footpath, in in his path. And you see that play out in the narratives throughout the Old Testament. But here's what's interesting there's also a command in Leviticus 18 that does seem to forbid polygamy. So we're going to have to do a little bit of work here. So it's from Leviticus 18, 18. And in the English translations we have, so the ESV included, uh, it says you shall not marry a woman. Now this is taken from the NESB because the way the NESB worded it helps us to kind of better see the underlying structure. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she's alive to uncover her nakedness. Now the int- <clears throat> the issue here is with the section to her sister because this 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 underlying hebrew structure could also be understood as an idiomatic expression in which uh instead of saying sister it could actually be to another so for example in, in this book in his God of a misogynist he says in hebrew a woman in addition to her sister is isha el Echota. i can never pronounce those things right um which literally means a woman to her sister this is an idiomatic expression which is scholars like richard davidson and gordon I'm not even trying to pronounce that, have argued, uh, is always used in the distributive sense of one in addition to another. Consider the following verses in which this exact phrase is used idiomatically. And so Elias is out. Exodus 26, 3, Exodus 26, 6, and then Ezekiel 1, 9. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, to one another, to one another, to one another. Now, to show you... What it looks like in the Hebrew. This is Leviticus 18. And then this is uh, Exodus 20 chapter 26. Now, in addition to her sister to one another. Now, this is the phrase from this one, right? This is the phrase from this one. But look, if you look at them, it's the exact same. Hebrew terms that sit underneath. So there is linguistic credibility. To this notion that Leviticus 18.18 18 should be interpreted, not as sister, but in this idiomatic way, to one another. So if you were to read it, it would say this. You shall not marry a woman in addition to another as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. And this would be a prohibition against polygamy. Now what's interesting, so remember the question I asked you before. Where did where did Jesus, where did the early church get this idea that monogamy was was the path? for human sexuality. Was this a new idea? Well, actually, the Essenes, or the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls, have you heard of those? They were a, a separatist religious sect that removed themselves from the larger community because they felt like the larger community had lost their way, wasn't actually following the scriptures. And one of the accusations that the, the Essenes laid against the Pharisees was that they were fornicators, because they were polygamists. And they pointed in reference this passage as scriptural support for the notion that polygamy was against God's law. Interestingly, the Essenes were also the first community that rejected slavery, on principle. So, they were a contemporary religious sect of Jesus, of Paul, and of the early church. And so the reason I'm highlighting this is because there, there is strong textual as well as historical support that there was a long-running interpretive tradition that read this verse in this idiomatic way and you see this reflected in the Essenes and I think this makes a stronger case for why when Jesus is instructing the church and why the early church the apostles etc all adopted monogamy it's because they were drawing on this tradition that already existed it wasn't a new teaching it wasn't a new teaching make sense um <coughs> excuse me and so while this interpretation can be disputed it does have linguistic and historical credibility and in this light Old Testament laws that regulate for example uh, polygamous relationships can be understood in much the same way that Jesus says we should understand the Old Testament laws on divorce it's not that that was God's ideal it's that God permitted it because you're hard-hearted and sinful and you didn't want to't didn't want to cause further harm or allow further harm to go out Make sense? So, textual disputes. So now we're going to get into specific texts. Uh, we still got a little bit of ground to cover, so I'm going to try to move quickly. Leviticus 18, uh, there's really no argument about what the texts say. Uh, so we're looking at verses 18, 22, and Leviticus 20, 13. It says what it says, you should not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So there are varying, a couple varying revisionist arguments against this text. Uh, the two that we're going to look at today are the command that they, they want to relativize this and they want to say that this command was against idolatrous worship specifically, not a general prohibition. And the second one is that these commands are due to patriarchal understandings. So You're going to see how that comes into play. We're going to look at that one second. So, only a prohibition of idolatrous worship. So, yes, the command was given within the context of larger admonitions to avoid participating in idolatrous worship. If you recall, I think it was week two, we looked at Leviticus 18 and how God was telling them, You're not to do what the Egyptians and what the Canaanites do, because what they do is wrong. You're to worship me in accordance with my commands. And that's where you find Leviticus. So, yes. It's in the context of larger admonitions to avoid idolatrous worship. But to say the warnings against idolatry limit the commands to just that context is absolutely absurd for two reasons. First, do the other commands against incest, adultery, and bestiality only apply to the context of idolatry as well? Can one have sex with a goat in a way that honors God? Because I'm not doing it in idolatrous worship Of another god most of us are like probably not (laughs) if not why then is this specific command limited while the others are not (laughs) secondly the opposite trajectory is just as reasonable in fact a much better way of understanding command these commands are not limited to a specific idolatrous practice but are to be understood as being the sorts of practices that those who are idolaters engage in. Thus, the commands are binding because they are the practices of those who are given over to idolatry. And to know and walk with God means not doing these sorts of things for you to test them. So which of those two readings do you think makes more sense? So, secondly, we're going to spend some time on this. Uh, The commands in Leviticus are based on patriarchal understandings of gender, gender so they don't apply. So this is what Vine argues. He draws on Brownson. This is where all this stuff comes into play. And, And what he tries to argue is that the prohibitions in Leviticus are not there because of the gender distinction being broken, but what sits behind this is this hierarchical patriarchal understanding of things and when a man sleeps with another man, he's treating a man as a woman and, and, and denigrating or shaming the man, right? Because he's treating him like a woman. So he's, he's trying to frame it patriarchal. So therefore, that's really what's at issue here, not, not this idea that gender and or male and female distinction is being broken. Now, in support of his assertion, he references a couple people, Philo and Clement. Now, I don't have Philo, but I actually do have the work that he was referencing from Clement of Alexandria. So we're going to look at what Clement says. But before we do that, I want to, see, I want to show you how Vines frames this. And then we're going to look at Clement and, let, and try to let Clement speak for himself. So he says, Clement of Alexandria, a second century Christian writer, said passive men suffer the things of women. He warned them against removing body hair, writing that man's willingness to engage in a feminine activity meant he would take the woman's role in sex. He who in the light of day denies his manhood, Clement wrote, will prove himself manifestly a woman by night. Yes, the clear denigration of women in these texts is offensive, but notice what the writers don't say. They don't talk about the design of male and female bodies. There's no mention of anatomical complementarity. Instead, they base the rejection of same-sex relations on a different belief because women are inferior to men. It is degrading for a man to be treated like a woman. So you see that patriarchal frame? It's drawn on Brownson. That's why we spent so much time looking at that complementarian argument that Brownson's making where he's framing everything under the specter of patriarchy. So this is how Brownson, or no I'm sorry, this is how Vines is drawing on Brownson. This is how Vines is wanting people to believe we should read Leviticus because Clement was a misogynist pig. And the reason he said the things he did is because he was a he was infused with this patriarchal understanding of society. Now let's take a look at some of the things Clement said. But before we do that, let's put it in context in the larger section. Clement is looking at a society that he's living in and he's lamenting the lamenting and criticizing the carnal and sexualized practices of the larger culture, and he's extolling both men and women to pursue lives, uh, of modesty and chastity. That's the context. And in fact, Clement actually, well, we'll read what he says. So he's talking about these women who are intentionally sexualizing themselves in order to draw attention. He says, Unawares, these poor wretches destroy their own beauty by the introduction of what is spurious. At the dawn of day, mangling, racking, and plastering themselves over with certain compositions, they chill the skin, furrow the flesh with poisons, and with curiously prepared washes, thus blighting their own beauty. Wherefore, they are seen to be yellow. From the use of cosmetics and susceptible to disease, their flesh, which has been shaded with poisons, being now in a melting state. So they dishonor the creator of men as if the beauty given by him were nothing worth. He almost sounds like a feminist. I mean, you could quote this, rearrange the words, and he's like, hey, ladies, why are you covering yourself in makeup? Why are you, Why don't you recognize The natural beauty that is yours, that is a God-given thing. Such a misogynist pig, right? In our modern context, this would be like a pastor telling uh, women who post nude and sexually explicit videos on OnlyFans. That they're dishonoring themselves and the God who made them. Because they, they don't recognize the value and beauty that they have given to them by the God that makes them. Now this isn't to say that Clement is perfect, but it does sound like Vines is mis-, does it, does it sound like Vines is representing him fairly? So what of Clement's statement about men plucking out their hair? So the broader context here again has to do with the actions of men who were intentionally seeking to make themselves attractive to other men by feminizing themselves. And we may find Clement's arguments odd, but his references to hair and beards and the admonition to stop removing them, is because they're men, and as men, they have facial hair and body hair. That's how God made them, so they, they should embrace that. And, and he's taking issue with the fact that they're intentionally trying to make themselves look more like women. So he writes, <clears throat> It is therefore impious to desecrate the symbol of mar- manhood, hairiness. But the embellishment of smoothing, for I am worn by the word, if it is to attract men, is the act of an effeminate person. If to attract women, it is the act of an adulterer, and both must be driven as far as possible from society. So if we're being fair to Clement, his concern is the connection that these activities of removing body hair, right, have to do with these perverse pur- their, their perverse purposes to try and attract other men. Does this make sense? Now, <clears throat> we might find Clement's argument silly, and that's okay, but we have to, we have to read Clement within his own context and we, we, we can't assume that Clement didn't know his own culture better than we do. So Clement is watching what they're doing, and he's saying they're doing this to look more like women to sexually attract other men. So I think we should take Clement at his word. He, know, he probably knows his own culture better than we do. And additionally, when Vine says there's no reference to, design, to the design of male or female bodies and anatomical complementarity in Clement's arguments, I would say while it's true Clement doesn't directly speak about genitalia, the reference he's making to hair on men, etc., that only makes sense if he, if he understands there's a difference between men and women. And in fact, notice what he says here. But for one who is a man to comb himself and shave himself with a razor for the sake of fine effect, to arrange his hair at the looking glass, to share, shave his cheeks, pluck hairs out of them, and smooth them, how womanly and in truth, unless you saw them naked... You would suppose them to be women. For God wished women to be smooth and rejoice in their locks alone, growing spontaneously as a horse in his mane. But as adorned men like the lions with a beard and endowed him as an attribute of manhood with shaggy breasts assign this of strength and rule. I, I don't get the shaggy breast thing. <laughs> right? But notice what he's doing. He's saying what? Men and women are different. And these dudes are making themselves look so much like women. You'd assume them to be one unless you saw them. What naked. What's the assumption there? There's genital differences between men and women, but what are the quote about women being a woman at night that that he references? So the context is men who are engaged in all sorts of activities in public that he's been talking about. They're publicly doing these things. Shaving themselves, presenting themselves as feminine, walking around naked in the gymnasiums, etc., to draw the attention of other men. Their wants of shame in public attests to their unbridled licentiousness in private. Here's the quote. For he who in the light of day denies his manhood will prove himself manifestly a woman by night. And a little further on, he says this. The man who would be beautiful must adorn that which is most beautiful, which is the most beautiful thing in man, his mind which every day he ought to exhibit in greater comeliness, and should pluck out not hairs, but lusts. I pity the boys, possessed by the slave dealers. They are decked for dishonor. But they are not treated with ignominy by themselves, but by command the wretches are adorned for base gain. So what he's talking about is these slave owners who take boys, doll them up like women, and use them as prostitutes. But how disgusting are those who willingly practice the things to which, if compelled, they would, if they were men, die rather than do. So he's making a distinction. There are those who are forced into this, but there are others who willingly pursue these things. But life has reached this pitch of licentiousness, the wantonness of wickedness, and lasciviousness lasciviousness is diffused over the cities, having become law. So what he's saying, this is now the law and practice of the land. Beside them, women stand in the stews, offering their own flesh for hire for lewd pleasure, and boys, taught to deny their sex, act the part of woman. So Vines, there might be some sexism in containing Clement's words, but to assert a hierarchical and patriarchal view of men and women is the only main or primary thing that Clement, or a reason for why Clement is saying the things that he's saying, is to misrepresent him. Uh, now, <clears throat> Vines may have done this unintentionally. Uh, he may have been re- re- relying on the writings of others, right? But finding this sort of shoddy scholarship does cause me to question what Vines also says about other historical precedents. Does that make sense? Because when you read Clement in context, again, he says some things that we would say, yeah, it's probably a little misogynist. But guess what Clement was also being influenced by? The scriptures. The scriptures. And that one quote, clearly he has a a much higher view of women than Vines is wanting to give him credit for. So it highlights the importance of of tracking down and fact-checking sources to verify the veracity of what people are saying. So again vines may have done this unintentionally but nevertheless it does lead me to say i don't trust your scholarship now the key problem with the patriarchy framing while it's one thing to talk about clement being patriarchal it's a whole other thing and entirely wrong to assert that the biblical writers were motivated only by misogynistic views of women when speaking against same-sex erotic relationships to say this is to effectively malign the spirit by insinuating there are base motives that lay beneath the commands and instructions we have in the scriptures. It ignores the most basic understanding, the internal logic of the biblical text itself, that the male-female distinction at creation is important and constituted. Almost done. Two more texts, and then uh, we'll be bringing it to a close. So the next set of text is in Corinthians and Timothy. We're only going to be looking at the one in Corinthians because both of them use the same words so that the objections on the revisionist side come into play for both. But Corinthians says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, sexual, moral, etc., et And then there's this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. And so the revisionist argument is that this is a mistranslation of <clears throat> two underlying words, malakoi and Arsenicoitai. Traditionally, these would be translated neither effeminate nor men who lay with men. In our modern translations, it's men who practice homosexuality. So the revisionist argument takes issue with the translation of our sinekoitai. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're to ask, okay, well, what's the best way to understand this word? What does it mean? Is, is translating this as men who lay with men uh, an appropriate translation? So the word sinekoitai, where did it come from? Or what, it, what does it mean? Uh, it's actually likely coined by Paul. There's no other example of this word in any of the Greek literature prior to Paul, so that leads scholars to say Paul probably m- made this word. So yeah, I'd well, okay, where did Paul get it from? Like, what's what's his source? Where's Paul making? Where like, where did he find it, or what, how how did he create this word? So when you read the LXX, which is the Septuagint, so over time Jews. Forgot how to speak and read Hebrew because they were speaking and reading Greek. And so they translated the Hebrew scriptures into the into the Greek, and that was known as the the Septuagint. And a Septuagint, Leviticus 20, 13, says, (laughs) Kai (laughs) has on meta arsenas koitane gunakas. That's odd, right? <laughs> now you don't speak Greek, I'm assuming, or read Greek, but even you notice that looks strikingly similar to our Sunakotai. And lo and behold, like if you lay them on top of one another, it, it becomes pretty clear where Paul is is drawing this this word from. Now, again, it's disputed, but at the end of the day, Paul was a, a Pharisee exceptionally versed. In both the hebrew and the greek scriptures and when he was writing to to the to the church instructing them on things it's likely the most likely explanation is that he was drawing from leviticus 2013 and he was using it and deploying it in first corinthians and first timothy and so men who lay with men is the proper way of understanding it so we want to hit this last phrase malakoi this one isn't disputed um it's understood as uh effeminate or soft And so Roman Greek culture viewed uh, sex through the lens of dominant and submissive or active and passive. And this isn't to say that Paul and the biblical worldview saw sex this way. And in fact, the reason the West understands sex through the male-female distinction, at least until recently, is evidence of how successful Christianity has been at shaping the West's understanding of human sexuality. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, if the male female, if male female complementarity, for example, is not the biblical worldview, then you have to ask, why did it replace this Roman conception of active and passive? Because that's what's happened. But it's still important to understand why is Paul using this term in in light of the the Roman view of active and passive? And so what Paul is doing, he's, he's addressing homosexual sin to the Romans and Greeks. Uh, and he does so in a way to prevent them from assuming as was their practice that it was only wrong to be the submissive partner. So you can see that he's addressing both the passive and the active participants. So that it was clear that all same sex activity was sinful. Make sense. Neither soft nor men who lay with men, neither the passive receiving nor the active giving shall inherit the kingdom of God. Both of those are wrong. And under the Roman and Greek conception, it was just inappropriate wrong to be the passive partner, not the active. So at the end of the day, men who practice homosexuality is an accurate translation. It's a translation, but it accurately reflects what Paul is saying within the context of Roman, of Greco-Roman society. Make sense? And additionally, Uh, Drawing from Leviticus 20.13, there's a a thematic connection with Corinthians because Leviticus 20.13 warns that those who practice such things should be put to death. And in Corinthians, what's he saying? Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a correlation thematically of judgment on these actions. And so that even offers a stronger case that that's actually where Paul's drawing or Senechoitai from. Last verse. We're almost done. Hang in there. Come on. Romans 1:26 through 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave them natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the revisionist objectives, uh, objections on this, uh, the first one is nearly identical to Leviticus. They argue, well, Romans is only specifically addressing this within the context of idolatrous worship. And so the same rebuttals that we looked at for Leviticus apply here as well. Does that make sense? So we're not going to spend any time kind of going through all that again. But but to say what Paul's describing is not idolatrous worship, but he's describing the actions of those who are idolatrous or given over to idolatry. Um, So the second objection has to do with the reasoning that Paul is objecting. And so, again, here comes all the patriarchy and all this other stuff, right? And they're saying that this this idea, contrary to nature, doesn't have to do with it being a violation of the male-female distinction. But it has to do with a violation of, guess what? Hierarchical, patriarchal understandings of sex. Because for a man to sleep with a man was to treat the other man like a woman. And for a woman to sleep with a woman was for the woman to act like a man. So the gender hierarchical arrangement is getting... Overthrown, and that's what Paul is saying is contrary to nature. Um, now, there's all kinds of problems with that. First, you have to accept the arguments that Brownson has made, and the, you know, how, how they, and they all kind of crumble at this point. Hopefully, you can kind of see that. But what I want to do highlight is is really I think what's important. And so, this phrase here, "contrary to nature," the term "nature," and this this goes all the way back to Aristotle. Had this connotation of involving telos, in end, or purpose. Does that makes sense. So we think nature as this kind of abstract kind of thing. For the Greeks, if they were talking about nature, they're saying it's acting in accordance with its purpose and design. Does that makes sense. So the acorn, it's in its nature to become a tree. That's its purpose, its aim, intent. And so this is a way of saying something was occurring that was out of step with the obvious intent, design, or purpose for which it was made. One can only get to the revisionist take by first proving the male-female distinction is a meaningless distinction in the biblical framework. That's the only way you can get there. But as we saw, having failed to do this, Brownson and Vines have nothing to stand on in making these assertions they don't. They don't. Do you feel Brownson and Vines were gay? No, uh, Vines is. Brownson, as he talks about in his book, his son came out to him as gay, which is what led him to go through this process. Um, so they're trying to make it okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and as Gagnon kind of rather bluntly notes, the natural suitability of the male and female biology wasn't a, was as apparent to the ancients as it is to us today. He writes, a male who allowed himself to be penetrated was acting like a female quite apart from issues of dominance and submission. The appropriate receptacle was absent from the male sex. The receptive male was trying to receive something that only females were made to receive. A female who attempted to have sex with another female cannot penetrate a woman's vagina without a prosthesis substituting for the male organ. This is simply or this, this is simply a, a basic biological difference that was as obvious in antiquity as it is today. You can see that, for example, in Clement's quotes, right? They would, they would almost come off to you as a woman unless you saw them what? Naked. Because clearly they have what? Plumbing. Plumbing. <laughs> Males have a sex organ suited for penetration and no orifice appropriate for sexual receptivity. Females have genital organs suited for receiving male penetration and no penetrating organ of their own. Sexual intercourse is complementary for males and females, and not males with males or females with females. Like this isn't rocket science. Like and this and this is this is how the ancients, un, like, they clearly understood this as well. Like otherwise there wasn't like this precipitous uh, decline in uh, in the population because they clearly knew how babies were made. You understand what I'm saying? Like, so, so trying to say the ancients didn't understand that there was a complementarity to the genders with respect to biology is just an absolute, it's absolutely nonsensical. So, conclusion. We've covered a ton of ground in the last few weeks, and I know today was probably like drinking from a fire hose, but hopefully we've touched on enough things to either give you confidence in the traditional understanding of gender and sexuality, or enough has been presented so that you, you. Clearly, can understand that these revisionist arguments are not built atop unassailable scholarship because they are not. They're not. The matter of homosexuality and with it transgender ideology, ideological notions of our biology, is not a meaningless or unimportant thing. Um, that this idea that we can we can trade trade our sexes, male and female, take them off and put them on like we would. Um, an article of clothing is is a, is a significant and deeply theological issue. Does that make sense? So in discussing these matters, we are talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. What it means to be a human being. These are deep realities. And Paul even ties this in to the gospel itself. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis. And then notice what he says. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So I'm going to just read this. Thus matters of sexuality are not incidental, but do tie directly into the gospel. And the analogy Paul makes here is significant. As the church, we are said to be united to and made one with Christ. We are like Christ in that we share his image but we are different from Christ in that we are the creatures and he is creator. The union of man and woman as one in marriage is meant to reflect this deeply profound truth. We are like one another in that both we as men and women share God's image, but we are different from one another as male and female. The joining of male and female as one points to and reflects the glorious mystery of our union with Christ. The creature being made one with his or her creator. Homosexuality, with its union of sameness, obscures this deep truth. Does that make sense? We are meddling with things we should not. And I'm going to close with Lewis. Lewis. We're dealing with male and female, not merely as facts of nature, but as the live and awful shadows of realities utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our direct knowledge, or rather, we are not dealing with them, but as we shall soon learn, if we meddle, they are dealing with us.